Today, we look at 1 Corinthians. How many of you read 1 Corinthians in preparation? 1 Corinthians is about 16 chapters, right? And um, it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a very troubled church in the city of Corinth. Now, Corinth still exists today in what country? Greece. That's right. It's right on the Peloponnesian Peninsula, just west of Athens, Greece. Now, I lived in Denmark, north of Greece, uh, back in 1995 and 1996. I played a season of basketball in the country of Denmark, and one of my Danish teammates named Louis had just gotten back from spending a month in Greece. Now, he conveniently lost his passport on this trip because he wanted to stay there longer. (laughs) A month he was in the Greek islands and the Greek coast, and he couldn't stop telling us about how amazing and beautiful this tropical paradise was. And that's where Corinth is, surrounded by beauty. I want you to get an understanding of uh, what Paul was, was walking into, what kind of church Corinth was. Now, you really need to understand that Corinth was the pleasure center of the Roman Empire. Recall that Rome was in charge here, and this whole empire, it's huge geographically, and Corinth is the pleasure center because the weather was pleasing, the women were pleasing, the intellectuals were pleasing, and if you went to Corinth, you would get your mind and your body pleased, as you will see. Acts chapter 18 shows us when Paul walks into Corinth. He had been in Athens. There's a land bridge from Athens into Corinth. He walked across that. He goes into Corinth. He's trying to understand what kind of culture he's walking into. He quickly realized, why do people love this city? Sex and philosophy. Those are the two things that were really standouts with the city of Corinth. Pastor Skip Heitzig um, called 1 Corinthians 1 Californians. 1 Californians. He was from California. He knew the culture there. Now, you may have never been to California, but if you have sang a few songs about it, you get an understanding of California. For example, you probably sang that Beach Boys song. I wish they all were California girls. That's right. Or the Eagles. They're living it up in the Hotel California. How many songs are there about the sexiness, if you will, of California? Living it up, right? That is also the home of Hollywood. And I have said many times, standing up here telling you, please don't get your theology from Hollywood, right? These movies I just passed out for free, right? They were produced by two brothers from a church. They have a Christian perspective. They are totally different than a lot of the other movies and television that we get from Hollywood. Hollywood produces philosophies. They are influential teachers to our youth, to everyone. Many people build their knowledge about God and and all kinds of things based on movies they've saw, right? They have seen uh, television shows. Now, California has this reputation. I'm kind of making it sound bad. I'm not trying to pick on them. I just want you to understand what kind of city Corinth was. Very similar to um, what was going on or what we see in California. In fact, Corinth was the temple 
of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. And to give you an understanding, there was about 10,000 prostitutes called priestesses that worked the temple. Now, I once visited Amsterdam for a day. I was on a work trip with another guy. We toured the streets. We stumbled upon the red light district. And I have never seen so much sexual immorality in one small place than the red light district of Amsterdam. All right? But I got to tell you, I don't think it touches what was going on in Corinth. So you understand the, the, the culture that Paul was walking into. In Corinth were the followers of people like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. These great Greek philosophers. Men would sit around talking about uh, discussing new philosophies, philosophies ad nauseum. All right? They love to talk about their knowledge. You know that really smart person in your family or in your circle of friends, right? And they never stop talking because they think they know everything about every single subject, right? There were hundreds of them in Corinth, okay? Sometimes I wonder if they're so smart, then when are they going to figure out to shut up so somebody else can talk, right? I mean, it's uh, the type of people that were in Corinth. If you went to Corinth to visit, you were going there for two things, most likely, sex or wisdom. You either had some money for the prostitutes, the priestesses in the temple, or you had an open mind because you wanted to learn about what the greatest new philosophies were. And the thing about Corinth, and I joke that you know, it was like California, honestly, it's like America. Do we not live in a culture, in a, in a country that is sort of obsessed, somewhat obsessed with sex and philosophy? I mean, we are told to be tolerant of everyone's life choices. We are supposed to be open-minded so everyone can live life on their own terms. Isn't that what our country has kind of become? You picking up what I'm laying down here? Yeah, yeah. So Corinth is really not much different than where we're at right now. Um, I think Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, is really so relevant that it's on my short list for what book I would like to preach through in 2021. So I'm thinking seriously about preaching through this book because it just has so much applicable stuff to churches today. In the fact, really, I think mostly that we cannot be, uh, the church cannot uh, be told what to do by the culture, right? The church must influence the culture, not the other way around. Paul, the Apostle Paul, spent 18 long months in Corinth, an unusual amount of time in one place. He was a church planter, traveling around the Aegean Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, planting churches in every town he went. But there, here he spends 18 months. While he was there, he took a job as a tent maker, because that was his trade. If he was to show up in St. Clair Shores today, he would have got a job down on Jefferson, where I go running, and they have all those canvas shops down there, and he would have made sales for boats. All right? That, that would have been his job. All right? So 18 months, he's spending, and he, and he meets this couple, you read it for yourself, Aquila and Priscilla, and, and probably led them to Christ. Um, and works with them. They're tent makers too. Why does he stay so long? Well, the Lord speaks to him and tells him that I have many people in this city, many people who would become Christians if he will stay there and preach the gospel and teach the gospel. And that's what Paul did. Now, I want to point out that Paul was a bivocational minister. Now, if you don't know what bivocational minister is, I was bivocational for 14 years. The first 14 years of this church, and just up until um, this school year, 
Um, I um, worked as a teacher. Uh, uh, my wife's a teacher. We worked to support ourselves. The church didn't support us completely. Um, Paul did it for a couple of reasons. Paul was bivocational for two reasons. First of all, he saw an opportunity to share the gospel with people he worked with. I mean, he led Aquila and Priscilla to Christ. He probably led many people that came to the shop to Christ. Probably got a chance, uh, an open door to talk to them. Maybe you see your work or your school as a place to minister. I sure did. 14 years, or actually I taught for 16 years, and 16 years of teaching, I had plenty of opportunity to share my faith and encourage others. In fact, it's been a blessing because some of those people that went to my school, I married, they're here today, all right? Uh, I've dedicated their babies, I've baptized them. What a blessing it is to use your work as a ministry, as a mission field, amen? If you're doing that, I hope you are. The second reason Paul worked was so that nobody could accuse him of using that, that, that calling on his life to serve the Lord full-time as a way to make money. So he didn't want anybody to accuse him of that, and so he wanted to just lay that foundation as an apostle that everything's in Christ alone, this isn't about me. But I will say that normally he points out that ministers are supposed to get support from the body of Christ. They should receive their income from the body of Christ, and that's why I thank you for giving consistently because I have this wonderful joy of waking up every day and uh, saying, this is awesome. I'm in my sweet spot. I mean, after 14 years of doing both, I was honestly burned out, tired. Uh, uh, It was hard to do both, wanting to give more. And so I thank you. I thank my wife for continuing to teach. We have health insurance and and all all of those things that are important. But uh, may God receive all the glory um, as you support this church and as I serve him, as uh, Paul Uh, points out. Paul did leave Corinth eventually after 18 months, and then he wrote a letter back to the city because he had heard from Chloe's people, you read this in the text, um, there were some major problems in the church. And that's what I want to look at. I want to look at these problems that were going on in the church because ultimately the solution to the problems is the title of this message, which is called Holy Gifts. Because when you think of spiritual gifts, you got to think of 1 Corinthians, because that's where Paul talks about them. What makes the church strong and powerful? What makes the church a difference maker in the community? What makes the church a difference maker in the community? It is the holy gifts, the spiritual gifts. When they are filling us up, empowering us to do what God has called us to do. That's what makes the difference. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we build up each other, and we reach our community with the love of Jesus. So holy gifts is what this is all about. It's sort of this whole series, if you will, of holiness. It started with Leviticus, be holy because I am holy. Last week, right, what did we cover? 1 Peter, 1 Timothy, Titus, and that was all about um, holy living, right, holy conduct in our lives, and here we are now talking about these holy gifts that we have, these spiritual gifts. So that's where we're at. Are you with me? All right, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day to to hear your word, to see how 1 Corinthians can make a difference in our lives today. Thank you for this beautiful weather. Thank you, Father, that you have and always will be in control. Father, I know many of us are, um, well, maybe some of us are excited about um, a new president. Maybe some of us are disappointed. 
But no matter what, Father, we pray for our leader, whoever that may be. We pray for our government leaders. We pray for this country, Lord, that we may be an example, that we may draw close to you in all we do. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. So I try to break down 1 Corinthians for you and help you see it. In chapters 1 through 4, there's a big problem, and the problem is worldly wisdom. You have these new Christians that are still thinking like old worldly wisdom, like this Greek philosophy um, that was very prevalent. They were known for their philosophers, great, great um, thinkers debating um, all the time. And you know, when, when you argue your point, you try to bring in other sources to support you, right? And so no philosopher would um, just basically make his argument on his own merit. He would talk about his favorite other philosophers, right? That's something that I'm sure that you do. Every philosopher is influenced by others. Every philosopher borrows ideas from others. As a uh, basketball coach and baseball coach now, too, because of my son, um, what's what we do in basketball coaching, right? Um, if you've ever coached, you know, you understand that you don't make up all the plays. You see somebody else runs a really good play and it works, and you steal it. <laughs> I mean, that's how it works. 90% of my plays are like, hey, that team did it. I'm going to make that, put that in my playbook, right? I mean, maybe somebody I helped Jim Harbaugh out with this. Oh, sorry, I did go there. We're having some troubles in Michigan. I'm a Michigan fan, so uh, anyhow, coaching, right, is, is, is borrowing ideas from others, implementing them if they work. I mean, that's 90% of coaching, to be honest with you. Um, this is what Christians were doing in the city of Corinth. They were, they were taking um, their favorites and, and putting them higher than, than they should have. Paul says, some of you are saying, I follow Paul. Some were saying, I follow Apollos. Some were saying, I follow Cephas or Peter. And Paul's saying, stop, stop doing that. Stop thinking like that. That's, that's the old way. That's the way your city thinks. Christ is not divided, he says. He points out in Ephesians, there's one body, there's one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Worldly wisdom is not the same as spiritual wisdom. We've got to understand that as Christians because we get caught up thinking the way the world thinks a lot of times. And Christians will, will, will grab on to their favorite preacher or their favorite author, and I think that's great. I have my favorites too, but you cannot escalate them or, or elevate them above the Word of God. They cannot be more important than the Word of God. In many cases, people are doing that. They're changing their ways because so-and-so did it and they found success, right? I know lots of pastors that are going on the wrong roads because they think that it's going to bring success to their church. And what's success? Well, when pastors get together, we talk about butts and budgets. We talk about how many butts are in the seats, right? We talk about our attendance, and we talk about how big our budgets are, right? Like how many are on our staff and all of that. I don't talk about that stuff, right? Because um, I don't need to. I understand that's not success to God. Success to God, as Paul says, is we plant the seed, we water the seed. We plant and we water and who grows it? God. God brings the growth. So don't get stuck thinking like everyone else. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 2.14, I'll give you this 
verse here. I try not to overwhelm you with too many verses. I never am successful at that, by the way. <laughs> Lots of verses. But if you look at your screen here, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, you'll see that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because he is spiritually discerned. The worldly person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit cannot understand the things of God because they think like the world. Yet, in verse 12, back up two verses, we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And you know what we have? We have the mind of Christ. I've read that so many times. In fact, I think there was a famous, uh, maybe A.W. Tozer wrote The Mind of Christ. I don't remember who, who was the author, but I read that book a long time ago. The mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit gives you the mind of Christ. You're able to think like Jesus, if you will. And to me, that's a gift from God. That's a holy gift from God. To have the ability to think like Jesus. To think like God. It helps us understand, think correctly. It's a holy gift. And when we have that, we really solve that problem of thinking like the world. Right? John told you, don't love the things of the world. And Paul's telling you here, don't think like the world. Think like the Holy Spirit. Listen to the Holy Spirit. So that's problem number one that Paul was seeing happening because of the culture, right? And he didn't want them to be affected by the culture. Problem number two uh, is in chapters 5 and 6, and it has to do with sexual immorality. Sexual immorality was a a big deal, all right? Um, And it was happening amongst Christians. It does not surprise me when the world, right, dishonors God with this topic of sex. It does surprise me when Christians do it, and it surprised Paul. Paul says right away in chapter 5, verse 1, it's reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Now that makes your stomach turn, I'm sure. The Corinthians, though, lived in this sex-saturated city, and this is a perfect example of how the world, the culture, was influencing the church. They got caught up in this, and they just thought that they could do whatever and not looking at what, what God says. I want to also point out something in this, this book here um, that, that shows up, and that is a very important truth that all Christians need to understand, and I wish we would teach this in all churches so we understand this and get this right. We are not called to judge outside of the church. We are not called to judge outside of the church. We are called to judge inside the church. Now, I know you might be thinking, wait a minute, Jesus said something about this, right? Jesus said, don't judge others. And really, when you look at what Jesus said, and we take it all together, you'll recognize exactly what Paul teaches here. It's in verse 11 through 13. We are called to judge within the church, not outside the church. Verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, don't even share a meal with such a so-called Christian. He says in verse 12, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside but you purge the evil person from among you. Now, I know that sounds harsh, and let me tell you, 1 Corinthians was a pretty harsh letter, okay? But you're going to see in the end it had results. 
Don't judge those outside the church. You're not going to win people to Jesus that way, right? You're just not going to do it. We're called actually to witness, are we not? X, 1, 8, not judge. Jesus didn't say, for you are to be my judges to the ends of the earth. <laughs> he didn't say that. He said, you are to be my witness, right? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So witnessing is sharing what God has done for you. You plant the seed, you water the seed. And if I say that enough, I start to feel like Miyagi from the Karate Kid. Wax on, wax off. Plant the seed, water the seed. That's your job, right? You plant the seed and you water the seed. You have this testimony, this wonderful testimony, something God's doing in your life. I call it a slice of life. I love it when people come up and share what God's doing in their life. You should be doing that all the time to your neighbors, to your workers, to your, to your friends. Right? You should be sharing that. This is what God's doing in my life. When you do that, you're planting the seed. You're watering the seed. You're helping them see God is awesome and God is in control and, and God loves you. And when you do that, God has a way of making that person grow in their faith, bringing them to Christ, bringing them to church, bringing them into a personal relationship with Jesus. So that's our job. But inside the church, we are called to judge. And I want to just tell you, I think there's some people out there, some Christians out there, you might know who they are. You might look in the mirror and say, uh-oh, that's me. But there is no spiritual gift of judging. It's not your spiritual gift to judge others, okay? It's not a spiritual gift. Some people just love it to point out when people sin, right? This isn't about every time you sin and make a mistake, you point it out to them. No, this is about people who are living habitually in sin. And when you judge them, it's called church discipline. And the leaders are really ultimately the ones who are supposed to follow through on Church discipline. I'll tell you personally, church discipline is not fun, but it's important to protect God's people. It's important to protect the church. What, what parent doesn't discipline their child? Why do you discipline your child? Because you don't want them to repeat the behavior. You don't want them to hurt themselves in the long run. Am I right? You do it because you love them. That's the same thing we have to do in the church. We have to help people see the truth. And when we practice it, it protects the church. I told you last week, why do people don't go to church? Because they think we're a bunch of hypocrites. So church discipline fixes this problem. It helps us understand. It's part of the solution. Now, Jesus laid it out, by the way, for church discipline. We don't have to make this up. We don't have to come up with our own solution. The solution is you go to a person one-on-one, and you tell them, listen, you're living in sin right now. This is a problem. It's affecting you. It's going to hurt you in the long run. It's hurting others. It's affecting the church. You shouldn't do this. And if they don't listen to you, if they don't repent, turn away from it, then you take the elders. Take two or more and say, hey, we're in this together. We love you. We don't want you to keep doing this. And if they don't listen to that, then you bring them for the church. And if they don't listen to that, then Paul says you remove them. You, pretend, you, you, you don't pretend. You, you treat them like they don't even, they're not even a Christian. And, and that's not always fun to do. There was a church many years ago that were um, anxious to bring on an associate pastor with some great gifts to build up the church. And to my knowledge, they kind of ignored some suspicious behavior of this pastor at his previous church. 
And yeah, what happened was is he had an affair at the church um, with, with a, a woman, um, and um, they confronted him. He denied it. The woman confessed it. She went before the church, she repented, and they forgave her. But this man did not repent. In fact, he removed himself. As far as to my knowledge, he's never repented, and the church would have removed him if, if he didn't uh, do it himself. Now, I credit the church for confronting the sin and not just sweeping it under the rug. And I've learned a lesson from it in the sense that we need to be careful how quickly we raise up leaders and how, who we put in leadership positions because we cannot, uh, character uh, is really, really important. Amen to that? I said a lot. Here's a summary of all this, okay? Churches have to stand firm when it comes to sexual immorality. We cannot ignore it. It's important. It will crush a church. You see this in the news when it happens in big churches. It splits churches. It divides the body of Christ when we don't take care of this. We have to help. This is what Paul is saying to this church, and I think he says it to us. We have to help others see that God has a healthy solution to sex. People have sexual desires, and God has a healthy solution. The solution is keep the marriage bed pure. That's the solution. Affairs, no, por- por- no, por- uh, no affairs, no pornography. A husband and a wife, the way God designed it. Marriage is a holy gift from God. Keep the marriage bed pure. That's the simple solution. I know it's not simple, but it's the solution that God has given us. Now, there's some other problems that are in chapters 7 through 11, which we don't have time to go through this morning. So I want to go to chapters 12 through 14, in which Paul instructs us about the spiritual gifts that were taking place in the church. What is a spiritual gift? Maybe some of you are like, I have no idea what a spiritual gift is. Well, let's see. In chapter 12, verse 1, there's a few verses I want to point out to you. First of all, Paul says, concerning spiritual gifts, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't either. I want you to be informed. So that's why we're talking about it. Verse 4, there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. How many spiritual gifts are there? There is no number, folks. Okay, we have some lists in the Bible in 1 Corinthians 12, in Romans uh, 12. We have some, but I don't think they're definitive. I don't. I think that you're going to see why in a second. Okay, but thanks for guessing. Though. I appreciate that. That's good. <laughs> Verse seven: To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Who receives a spiritual gift? Everyone. Every Christian. Every. You got the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's going to give you a gift. Now, here's the important thing, okay? And I think this is where, um, from this verse, I'm going to hopefully show you how my understanding of spiritual gifts might be different than what you have heard in the past. Verse 11, all these, all these gifts um, are empowered by one and the same Spirit. Holy Spirit gives the gift. Who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, when do you receive a gift? When you receive the Holy Spirit, right? That's what we assume. And the Holy Spirit, I believe, decides to give, you a holy, to give you a gift when you need it. Is that not what it says there? He apportions to each one individually as he wills. See, I think some Christians may have been taught at some point that when you become a Christian, you get this gift. You know, and, and it's your job to discover it and, and, then, and then use it for God's glory. And that's not terribly off. All right, that, there's not, that's not a terrible teaching or anything like that. But I just don't think it's 
accurate, if you will. Um, how many of you have ever taken a spiritual gifts test online? You can take them online. Some of you have. Okay, you could go Google that and find that, and you'll, you'll take a gift, and it'll ask you a bunch of questions, and then you can, you can determine, like, what's, what's your gift? But here's the thing about that. I believe that Scripture teaches us here that you receive a gift from the Holy Spirit. You are gifted to accomplish what he wants you to accomplish. So if you take a spiritual gifts test online, really you're just revealing what God has already gifted you to do in the past. It's like you put on a shirt for the second time and you still smell the cologne or the perfume. That's the concept here, right? You're just smelling what you've already done or um, God has, has gifted you to do. So the Holy Spirit can give you a new gift. So I, I guess I say that because so many people are like, well, my gift is teaching, so I'm going to teach. And that's great. If you recognize that as your gift, then you should do that. That's my spiritual gift. I hope you see that. <laughs> it is to teach, right? But that's not my only gift. Like, if God wants me to have another gift to fulfill something for his glory, then he's going to give that to me. And it might happen today, it might happen tomorrow, it might happen next year. The same thing as you. You're not, I'm not any more special than you are. When we, when we honor God and we serve him, he's going to gift you, and uh, we need holy gifts. We need spiritual gifts to build up the church. And that's really what I want you to understand. That's the purpose of the gifts. All right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, if you read the whole thing, that there's all these different gifts, and the, the purpose is to build up the body of Christ. He says that not, not one member is more important than the other. Right? The, the person serving in nursery right now, I've said this before, they're not more important than I am. They're taking care of some little ones so mom and dad can be up here and hear the word of God. They're just as important. The person that greeted you at the door, right? the person that prayed for the offering, we're all important. We all have gifts. In fact, Paul points out that the lesser ones, the ones that we view as lesser, are actually more important. I've often, you ever thought about um, the big toe? You know, it, it seems unimportant, but I hear if you try to run or walk without your big toe, it's really, really hard. Really, really difficult. That's what we're talking about here, right? God uses the weak, the weak ones, if you will, to confound the strong, doesn't he? I mean, he loves using those that will surrender to him. So the church needs all the gifts. Don't neglect your gift. In fact, verse 25, chapter 12, the purpose of the gifts, so there be no division in the body, and the members may have the same care for one another. Purpose of the gifts? Build up the church. Verse 12, chapter 14. So with yourselves, since you are eager, he's talking to the church of Corinth, you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Those Corinthians had a lot of spiritual gifts. In fact, when you read it, you're like, man, that was a crazy church. I mean, you, you would have walked into, some, to, into that church and, and you would have been like, what's going on? In fact, maybe you've experienced that in churches today. You walk into the church and you see some weird stuff happening, right? Usually it's, it's things that we're not comfortable with, not familiar with, not seen before, and you're like, man, that is really, really strange. A church that lacks order is a problem church. There must be order, Paul says. 
You don't want to walk in and feel like you're in the twilight zone. For young folks, that's a show that was on a long time ago. Okay? It was really weird. <laughs> to, to show the importance of building up the church, Paul uses two gifts as an example. Speaking in tongues and prophecy. And I just sum it up for you. Simple. Okay? The point of him bringing this up is, is not to say that those two gifts are, are, are better than the other gifts. He just brings it up because they are for different purposes. He says that the gift of tongues will edify or build up the person. But the gift of prophecy will build up the whole body of Christ. And he says in uh, chapter 14, verse 19, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others to build up the church than 10,000 words in a tongue. So why do we have these holy gifts? They are to build up the church. That is the purpose of them. And in the middle of all this teaching on spiritual gifts, Paul wedges in there one of your favorite chapters in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you've been to a wedding, you've probably heard it. Love is patient, love is kind, right? You know that passage. Well, it's wedged in there because he's actually saying to them, you can have all these spiritual gifts, what do they matter unless you express them with love? You must bring love. If you don't, forget about it. I'm like 25% Italian. I feel like I should say that word better. Forget about it. I don't know how to say that, like an Italian. <laughs> Holy gifts should be expressed through love, and that solves a lot of problems. Finally, Paul says in chapter 15, the core of the gospel is the resurrection. Because people in Corinth, some of them didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, which means they didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That's a problem, because Paul says in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then my preaching's in vain, your preaching's in vain, our faith is in vain, and you're still in your sins. That's a big problem. How can we have faith in Jesus if Jesus is still dead? How can we put our hope in eternal life, if Jesus wasn't resurrected? How can we love others with the good news if Jesus isn't alive today? And I don't know if you saw what I did there, but I just talked about faith, hope, and love. But what's the greatest? Love. I love my God, I love my Savior Jesus, and I love my church. We're not void of these problems that the Corinthians faced. We may not be experiencing them in the extreme way that they did, but we must overcome our problems with spiritual gifts, with holy gifts, so we can build up his church. And if you go home today and you read 2 Corinthians, I point out one verse to you to show you that the church responded to this very harsh letter. They must have read that and been like really convicted because Paul says in his second letter to them, he wrote another letter, he says, I rejoice not because you felt bad, he says, because you were grieved into repenting. You fixed your problems. Well, not all of them, you see. They, they were working on them still. But they repented and they started fixing them. And that's a great message for us today. You need to get back on track. Maybe you've been off track. Maybe you haven't come to church in a long time. Maybe you haven't been reading your Bible. Maybe you haven't been praying. Maybe you haven't been using your gifts to build up the church. Well, Paul is saying, I'm telling you today, 
Get back on track. Get back on track. Serve the Lord. Build up his church. God will gift you. The Holy Spirit will gift you accordingly. I hope you say, as Isaiah will say next week, send me. I'm in. I'll go. That's what we need Christians to say today. Are you in? Will you serve? What has God gifted you to do? Let's figure that out. Put that on your connection card. Put it in that offering basket on a table between the couches back there. And let's get you serving in God's church and build up the church and serve in the community as Barry came up here and asked you to do as as members of the body of Christ that we can share the love of Jesus with all of St. Clair Shores, with all of Macomb County to the ends of the earth. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful letter, this book, 1 Corinthians. Thank you as it teaches us how to solve our problems using the gifts that you have given us, the holy gifts. Father, I thank you that I have the gift of teaching, that I could teach your word today, that I could present what is so important for us to hear. Father, I thank you for those gifted to sing and to praise and play music and and instruments so we can praise your name and sing together as a church. I thank you for all those serving today that serve regularly here at Life of Purpose. May we continue to do that. May we step it up. May we make a difference. Let us be the difference makers in this community. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.